0: Well, good morning, everyone. How about that, James Trevilian? He has a voice, right? I mean, it's just perfect for listening. Uh, thankful for his technological mind, too. Everything that you're seeing right now, the televisions, the cameras, if you're in the multipurpose room or online with us, came from that beautiful mind of Pastor James. So thank you, James, for your hard work. Um, I'm just going to be honest, I had no idea what to do with all of this stuff. I thought you just popped a camera back there and started fidgeting with it, but uh, he knows. This will be my last Sunday with you for the next six Sundays. So uh, we are heading off to the great expanse of vacation for the month of August. Uh, we're going to kick it off though, Katie and the kids and I will be going up to Camp Berea And I've been asked to share some sermons at a family camp, so we're looking forward to that. I'll be speaking there four times, and then we're heading down to North Carolina as a family. But praise the Lord, we have two wonderful preachers for you lined up for uh, next week and then through the month of August. Uh, Next week will be Pastor James, and uh, he's going to be opening up John 17 for you, uh, and uh, just unpacking how Jesus prayed for us, which is a great passage of Scripture. And then Harry's going to take us through the month of August through marriage and family. And I'm really excited for that. I'm going to be joining in with you online and uh, worshiping with you as he opens up the Word of God. So if you will, please open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 32, Exodus 32. And if you don't know how to find Exodus, it's really easy. It's the second book of the Bible. You go to Genesis, and then you're at Exodus. Exodus 32. I will be praying for you. Now, that is an expression that either we've said to a friend or a friend said to us or if you're living in the modern texting social media age instead of saying all of that you just send them two hands clasped together saying praying for you now a lot of times when someone says i'll be praying for you it, could go one of two ways. Maybe they will be actually praying for you, but most likely it's the kind of statement they say when they really don't know what to say, so they just say, I'll be praying for you. Uh, whether they do it or not, that's a different story, right? But I will be praying for you is a powerful gift that we could give to another person. One of the terms of prayer in the Bible is the term intercession. Uh, you see it all over the Scriptures. There's intercession modeled for us by Abraham. We looked at that when we looked at Genesis chapter 18. Uh, we'll see it this morning with Moses. Daniel intercedes for Israel in Daniel chapter 9. And I think that's what Anna was doing in all of those years of prayer when she prayed in the temple in Luke chapter 2. We're also urged to pray for one another. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, First of all, then, I urge that intercessions be made for all people. And that really means, then, that intercession is an important work in the church. When you think about it at a practical level, people need prayer. I mean, marriages fall on the rocks all the time. Uh, We know people that have seemed excited for the Lord, and then just like that, they fall away. Children have made very destructive decisions. We know friends and neighbors and loved ones who live around us, and, and we know that they're living quiet lives of desperation without Christ, because they don't have that internal purpose that comes only with knowing Christ. So we can make a difference according to the Scriptures We can make a difference if we will learn to grow in prayer and truly pray for them. So we're going to look at Moses' prayer on behalf of Israel as we unpack this idea of intercession this morning. And it's a powerful example of prayer. It's selfless, it's loving, and he really goes to the heart of what intercessory prayer is in this passage. Now we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures this morning. Exodus 32 to 34, I'm not going to be reading all of that to you, I will be summarizing much of it. Your homework this week is to look at those scriptures so you see that I'm not just kind of cherry picking this out of the context, but that this really is in the context of that passage. Exodus 32 to 34. So let's begin with the idea of the need for intercession. The Exodus count is a story in the Bible. God sends Moses down to Egypt. Moses goes to on behalf of people. Go, God works His miracles, and the people of Israel, after some back and forth, with Pharaoh are finally released. Then God does a great work at the sea and saves them from a great disaster. He then takes them over to Mount Sinai and makes a covenant with the people of Israel and the relational dynamic of this covenant are summarized with the ten commandments as the people of israel received the ten commandments, they all went to upholding this covenant with god exodus 24 3 says moses came and told the people all the words of the lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words that the lord has spoken we will do they will and then Exodus 32 comes. Now, this passage of Scripture shows us how quickly spiritual highs can turn into spiritual disasters. Just one month after confirming the covenant, I mean, the ink hasn't even dried on the paper yet. Aaron is confronted by the people, and they get right to the point. Exodus 32:1. Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And... Quite beyond expectation, beyond belief, Aaron just simply complies. He says, "All right, well, give me all the gold that you have and throws the gold into the fire." And then the scriptures tell us that Aaron melts it down and forms a golden calf with a tool. And then the people looking at the calf say, "These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt." And then Aaron has this great idea. Let's hold a festival." And the scriptures say that they hold this festival and the people rose up to play, which is an expression with some very indecent connotations. It is not the kind of party that God would have asked Israel to throw. Let's just say that. The big question on all of our mind in this text is how in the world could this happen? I mean, how could these people who have watched God do all of these miracles and then confirmed a covenant with God in a short month, just one short month, systematically, step by step, undo everything that he's done? Now, I believe that there are several factors at play here, but there's one major factor. There is still too much of Egypt in these people. You have to understand, the people of Israel have only really been walking with God for a short time. They've spent 400 years absorbing Egyptian culture. And so for them, the ways of God are not quite natural. What feels more natural to them is idolatry. The idea that a a casted metal image represents presence of a God. And if you have that presence with you, it of course makes you feel safe. And Moses, I mean, he's been up in this mountain for 40 days. We no longer feel safe. So let's do what feels natural. Now, the longer you walk with Christ, the more you realize how this is true for us too. Uh, I've seen over the years, particularly when someone first starts walking with Christ, that there's still a lot of the world left in that person. They feel like the things of god are not quite natural why do i need to let god kind of inform my decisions i mean why does god care about how i date and who i date and what happens while i'm dating why do i need to read my bible every day and pray and go to church and engage in spiritual disciplines and why does god care about how i use my money and what i do with my money so we're, we're, we're much like Israel in this dynamic. And on the one hand, you know, you've trusted Christ. You're excited about this new life that you have in Christ. You realize that you've passed from spiritual death into spiritual life, that the blood of Jesus has washed your sins away. And you excitedly say, everything that you say to do, God, I will do. But then on the other hand, when God's word starts feeling unnatural, we say, I think I'm going to do what feels more natural to me. Now, more than anything, the golden calf reveals something not just for new Christians, but for all Christians. We can fall susceptible to spiritual entropy. And what do I mean by spiritual entropy? If you look at a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34, Paul says, I say this to your shame. He's saying this to Corinthian believers. They've departed from God's wisdom in some way. Now, that word shame is the Greek word entropy, which means to turn inward, uh, to become inverted. You know, there's a spiritual inversion that can take place in a believer's heart where they invert how things are supposed to be god's wisdom is how things are supposed to be and we start saying you know worldly wisdom seems like a better idea to me now the modern scientific term entropy is essentially the same as the greek word the universal law of increasing entropy states that every system tends toward disorder if left to itself which has a striking parallel to the spiritual realm. A person turning inward to draw on his or her own decision-making power or turning to some inferior, ineffective outward source will find that their spiritual life becomes greatly disordered. Now, if you just checked out for the last couple of minutes after I went through all of that scientific mumbo-jumbo, let me just bottom line it for you. When we decide what is right for ourselves it always ends badly. That's the point. And this is one major reason why a church must be a praying church. Because if Exodus 32 shows us anything, it shows us that spiritual entropy is not a freak occurrence. This is a temptation that's common to all of us. If you've been in the church from some time, you've watched people descend into this, or you have personally done so. And so, strong churches are praying churches. We're praying against this dynamic, praying that God will keep us firm and strong and standing in the faith. So, let's take a look at the work of intercession. Now, I want to define the term a little more for you. Intercession is derived from the Latin word inter, which means between, and cedar, to go. So, intercession then is an intervening or mediating between two parties with the goal of reconciling the differences between the two parties. If we were to outline Exodus 32 to 34, three words could sum it up. The first is rebellion. That's the need for intercession. The second word is mediation. That's the work of intercession. The third word is reconciliation. That's the hope of intercession. Richard Foster, in his wonderful book with a very creative title called Prayer, says this, If we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them. And this will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. When we move from petition to intercession, we are shifting our center of gravity from our own needs to the concerns of others. Intercessory prayer is selfless prayer, even self-giving prayer. Now, I want to show you a couple of principles about intercession as we watch Moses pray. The first principle that we see is that intercession is mediation. Remember, It is going between two parties that are at odds and seeking to bring about a reconciliation of those differences. As you read Exodus 32 and 33, you can look at those scriptures and become quite confused because it seems like this is what's happening. God expresses an intention after he learns or after he tells Moses what's happening with the golden calf. Moses then comes back to God and prays, and then it appears like God changes his mind. Now, does God change his mind? Look at Exodus 32.10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I might make you a great nation, Moses. Same thing, Exodus 33:3: 30, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. So two times, two different intentions of God expressed. And then look at the, the prayers of Moses. In the first prayer, Exodus 32, 11 to 14, he essentially says to God, won't you nullify everything that you've done in Egypt if you wipe the people out? And then he reminds God of the promises that God made to the patriarchs. Look then at Exodus 32, 32 Moses selflessly prays, If you will not forgive their sins, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And when it comes to God's intention of presence, Moses prays that God would go with the nation. He says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Now that is Exodus 33, verse 15 and 16. Now I think it's safe to say, as you look at the scriptures, that God does not literally change his mind. Okay, what we know of God from the Bible is God is omniscient. God is all wise. He knows everything, and he knows just how to apply all wisdom into every situation. He never struggles with indecision like we do. So what's going on in this passage? Well, what we're looking at here is a rhetorical device. It's a way uh, for God to say, Moses... I'm giving you an opportunity to do something very special right now. Often in the Bible, you'll see this type of... A device, God will uh, announce his intention to do something and then he invites a prophet to do something which is the work of intercession. You see this in the book of Amos. Amos 7, 1-3, through 3. look at this. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O oh Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob stand?" And he is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. So God invites us into this same type of mediating work with intercessory prayer. But here's the deal when we pray on behalf of someone, we're not the ultimate mediator we can't solve their deepest problem. We see this in the book of Exodus. We see that in some ways, Moses' prayer for Israel is not fully adequate. Remember, he says that Basically, he wants to offer himself for the people. You know, if you're going to blot them out, blot me out as well. And then God responds to Moses with verse 33. He says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out. Essentially, God is saying, Moses, you can't fill those shoes. You can't lay down your life for another human being and bear their sins. There is a role for someone who is far greater than you are. And while Moses' prayer is certainly selfless and loving, to pray for someone and think that I could be their full, true mediator is to kind of go think of it like this. Imagine your neighbor's house is burning down and you're going over to help them and you get this bright idea that you'll go over there with a squirt gun and put the house out. It's not going to work. You're not even going to put a dent into the problem. You see, the problem of sin is an eternal problem. And it needs to be met with an eternally large solution. And we see what God's provision is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is testimony given at the proper time. You see, when you pray for people. Don't fall under the false impression that you could ever be someone's Messiah. You can't. You can't take care of their deepest problems. So the work of intercession really is to reach out a warm hand to a friend who is hurting in prayer while never releasing your grip from God's true mediator's hand, Jesus. And what I want to do in that moment of prayer is I want to pray that there is an eternal connection made between my friend and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's move on and look at the next principle about intercession. It's a selfless work. I love how Moses grows in the book of Exodus. I remember being a young lad going to Sunday school class, hearing about these figures like Moses and Abraham and David, and walking away often from Sunday school thinking, I could never be like one of them. And then I read the Bible, and I start looking at their life according to the scriptures, and I say, you know what? I'm a lot like that guy. I could be like him. This is incredible that God used someone like this. You you go back to Exodus chapter 4 and God's telling Moses to go down to the land of Egypt, and Moses makes the whole dialogue about himself. He says, you know, God, those people won't accept me, and I'm not even really a good speaker. And after this back and forth, finally God just says, you know what, Moses, just get down there and do what I told you to do. And then we come all the way to Exodus 32, and we see this great transformation in the heart and character of Moses. God gives him this really tempting offer. He says, I will make a great nation of you, Moses. I got to tell you, it had to be tempting. I mean, can you imagine putting up with these people? They're murmuring about him. They're constantly questioning his leadership's decisions. Sometimes they're even willing to kind of like overthrow him. And yet, here Moses is humbly denying that and saying, no, Lord, If they can't go with me, I don't want to go either. That's humble. And I think God must have been so pleased with Moses' selfless stance. I come back to the reality, church, that we need to be a praying church, and that involves praying for one another. You see, praying for another brother or sister in Christ frees us from the tempting uh, heart attitude of self-absorption is so easy to walk into the local church and make it all about you Uh, what kind of message am i going to receive today i hope the music is the kind of music that i want today and what i need and i hope people are warm and welcoming to me And, and we walk into the church and we're not really doing what we're supposed to do in the church which is having our antenna up and looking around the room and saying god how do you want me to be a blessing to others today But when I pray for you and you pray for me, then we start seeing one another the way God sees us. We start loving one another the way God loves us. Like I said, it would have been so tempting for Moses to say, yeah, be done with them. Let's do this. I'm ready for my own nation. But after this deep prayer that he's been making on behalf of his people, he loves them from the heart. Can you imagine what it would be like in local churches across America if the people would pray for one another regularly. Not just I'm praying for you, but praying for one another. Now some of you say, well, I am praying. I've been praying for people for quite some time and it doesn't really seem to be making much of a difference. I hear you. But the answer from God's word is to keep on praying. You see, because intercession is also a persistent work. As you look at the exchange between God and Moses in this act of prayer, he keeps digging in. Moses keeps praying. He keeps going after God's best, not just the good thing that he might receive for Israel. Uh, Where does it start? God says, I'm going to destroy these people. Moses prays. God relents from that. And then God says, well, I'm not going to bring my presence with you as you go into the promised land. But Moses knows that that's not God's best for Israel. God's best would be for his presence to be with the people. So he keeps persisting. He keeps digging into the prayer. The truth about praying for people is it's hard work. I mean, wouldn't it be incredible if you prayed for someone and then, boom, instantly in that moment, you pray for them, they change. I'd love that. I'd have like the best church in all of America if that was the way it worked. Because we're an instant gratification culture. I mean, many of us have had to suffer under this pandemic with the reality that Amazon packages are now taking two weeks instead of two days. That's hard stuff. We're a microwave type of society. I want to just Press it, 30 seconds later, it's hot on the outside, cold in the middle. But that's the problem with instant. It leads to less than desirable outcomes. Richard Foster, again in his book Prayer, tells us why instant won't work with intercessory prayer. He says, when we begin praying for others, we soon discover that it is easy to become discouraged at the results which seemed frustratingly slow and uneven. This is because we are entering the strange mix of divine influence and human autonomy. God never compels, and so the divine influence always allows a way of escape. No one is ever forced into a robot style of obedience. Now, Foster says that God's ways are better, and we know that to be true. If I had it my way, I'd be like ripping skulls open and taking tools into brains and tweak here or there, and poof, you get this perfect individual. But God doesn't want it to work that way. His way is like the rain and snow that gently fall on the earth, disappearing into the ground and nourishing it. And then when just the right time comes, when his time comes, new life springs up. Now notice, No manipulation there, no control, no coercion, just perfect freedom. God's ways are best. Now let's look at the hope, the hope of intercession. The hope is reconciliation. Israel had sinned and destroyed that one-month-old covenant. Like I said, the ink hadn't even dried Moses knew that their greatest need was not a, a lack of judgment, but their greatest need was to have a restored covenant with God. Now there's an incredible scene where God commits to restore the covenant. Exodus 3:17, God says, I will go with you. My presence will come with you into the promised land. Now, Moses' response to me seems odd. I mean, if God said that to me, I'd be like, "Great. Let's pack everything up and go. We can head to the Promised land now." But in Exodus 33:18, Moses says, "Show me your glory." What? Why? Now, to understand that statement, you have to understand the context of the. There's been a lot of thoughts and ideas around why did Moses say, "Show me your glory? And when he said that, as you look at the context of Exodus, you see that on multiple occasions, God has shown his glory to the people of Israel, hasn't he? Uh, he showed Moses his glory at the burning bush. Then he was a pillar of cloud, and he was leading the people and protecting the people. We see God showing his glory on Mount Sinai when the cloud descends upon the mountain and alone can go up in through the Now, one thing that you see is a reoccurring trend with God and His glory in the Book of Exodus is that God shows His glory to people at His time and in His way for His purposes. But what is so st- different and striking here is that now Moses' glory—he's asked His glory Friends. Commentator notes, this is not simply to satisfy his curiosity, his longing, in effect asking God for some demonstration of the promise that he has just made. He is asking God to put it in writing. Now God agrees to the terms, and as he agrees to these terms, he reveals something new about his character. Exodus thirty-three, nineteen. The Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name. Now, God has already proclaimed his name to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. But as he passes in front of Moses in Exodus 34, 6, he reveals something new about his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You want to know what I find incredible about all of this? Is that Moses didn't know these things about God. Okay, Exodus 34.6 is brand spanking new Revelation. He knew God's name, but he didn't know that God's name meant all of these things about God. And yet, Moses could sense this about God. You know, by praying for forgiveness through this passage, Moses is prodding into the character of God. He's really asking big questions of God. Could God really forgive these people after such a great sin like this? And I mean, it was a whopper of a sin. They had broken the first and the second commandment a month after the covenant was made. They had made this golden calf. Moses is like, could God really forgive us? Could he really take us back? Could he really reconcile himself to us? And so when he asks for confirmation, God says, you get it, Moses. You understand me. You know what I'm like. You prayed in line with my heart and my will. And what is incredible about all of this is God didn't want Moses to start a new nation. He wanted Moses to more deeply comprehend who he is. He is a reconciling God. Friends, this is the heart of intercessory prayer. Intercession is primarily concerned with people's relationship with God. It cares first and foremost for their souls, not their financial status, not how they're doing emotionally, not that all their problems go away. No, while we're praying for people, we need to be praying for the thing that concerns God. We see this in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 3. Paul says, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God's heart beats for. Because here's the reality. People are always moving spiritually. They don't stay static. They're either moving toward God or they're moving away from God, from God. And sometimes when we're praying for people, it can just all feel so material. Oh, they have a need for a job. Their marriage is hurting. It just feels so material and earthy to us. But it's always spiritual. If a person's marriage is struggling, it's spiritual. And we pray, Lord, Let their marriage better reflect Christ's relationship to the church. If someone's lost their job, it's spiritual. Lord, help them to understand that you're their provider. And let them trust you with their livelihood. When a son or daughter is making a big life decision, whether it's the college that they're going to pick or the career or the person they're going to marry, it's spiritual, Lord. Let them trust you. You're the way, the truth, and the life. Let them not put their comfort and hopes and priorities in all of these other false forms of security. When someone is sick or dying, it is spiritual, Lord. In the midst of this suffering, let them not fall away. Let them finish the race well. You see, friends, this changes how you pray and it abuse your prayers with purpose. No longer are we just simply praying, Lord, fix their problems. Make all these difficulty, difficult things go away in their life when in reality, maybe sometimes God's allowing those things so that they'll see him. We're praying, Lord, transform them to look more like Jesus. That church is the kind of praying that matters. So my question for you as we apply this text is, are you praying for people? I mean, really praying for them. And especially, are you praying for your church family? You see, when we pray for one another, we look most like Jesus. That's what Jesus is about all the time. Right now, even as I speak to you, he's praying for you and he's praying for me. We're told this in Romans eight thirty-four. He is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Hebrews seven twenty-five says that he always lives to make intercession for us. Our mediator knows that we need him. And so we should be doing that same type of work, praying for one another, knowing how desperately each one of us needs him. I know when I get up here on a Sunday morning and say something like, you need to be praying for one another, my heart quickly says, oh, that's overwhelming. How can I possibly pray for for like 300 people every day? Well, here's the thing. God is a great delegator of responsibilities. And so We don't have to do it all. Remember, we're not the Messiah. But we can do some of the work. We can keep it simple. We can pray for the people that God lays on our hearts. We can watch as we pray for those people how he grows our love for them. We can be intentional. And here's the big one. We can be persistent. And as you continue to pray for that person, then you can go up to them And with a heart of love and compassion and encouragement, say, you know what? I'm praying for you and really mean it. Now, if you would, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads, and I'd love the privilege to pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word, your eternal word, which is true. We looked at Exodus 32 and 34 this morning. We see... That intercessory prayer is so foundational to the vitality of a local church. Thank you for Moses' example and model of that in the scriptures. But thank you most of all for the eternal work of Jesus who is making intercession on behalf of us each and every day as our great high priest. I pray for this church I ask that we would be a church of prayer, Lord. I know that even right now as I pray, there are many in this church who pray for others. I know that there's groups that meet together to pray for others. But we don't want to be a church where some people are praying. We want to be a church that prays, Lord. So make us that kind of church. Uh, Embed it in our DNA. When people come into this space, may they feel the sense that they are being prayed for and invited into the purpose of praying for others. We love you, Lord, and we want to serve you with all that we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.